We are continuing, as always, through the book of Matthew. <laughs> it's funny I say as always. Uh, and we're in chapter 17 in a very famous passage this morning. It's uh, called the Transfiguration. Most of you are likely familiar with this. And as you're turning there, it's on page 977 in your pew Bibles. I do want to make a quick plug uh, for the upcoming uh, Sunday school class uh, called Spirit and, and Truth. And it's actually a fascinating exercise to come to the scriptures and to ask the question, how does God want to be worshipped? Because when we think of our God, uh, he is a God who, is, who communicates with us. He, he tells us who he is, and he tells us what he prefers and what he likes. And so that movie really asks that question and, and answers it in a very uh, fascinating way. And so I would encourage you to pack out the Sunday school class at 8.30 starting next Sunday morning. And meanwhile, while I was talking, you all turned there, but I am not even close. So give me a second. So this is Matthew chapter 17. We're looking at the first 13 verses. Hear the word of the Lord. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He was still speaking, when behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, Tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. And the disciples asked him, well, Then why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? He answered, Elijah does come, and he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come. And they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we come before you, and as we anticipate you speaking to us from this passage and helping us understand your glory, as you revealed it to three of your closest disciples on this mountain, God, I pray that you would open our hearts and minds, that the light of who you are would shine in our hearts. 
that we might be more fully confirmed in the reality of who you are through your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, Jesus is great. As our scriptures have emphasized recently, if you've been here with us, he is the Christ. He is the son of the living God. He's the king, the son of David, the hope of Israel. And so you would think that given how great Jesus is, that after he tells his disciples that he must suffer and die, the first thing that he would do is try to comfort them. Try to help them understand why somebody so great would have to die. Many of you remember the assassination of John F. Kennedy. Most of us don't, but many of you do. He, he, he held a great office, he was a great man, and his death seemed so senseless. Just like Jesus predicting his death seems so senseless to the disciples. But that's not what he does. Instead, he takes three of his closest friends onto a high mountain, and he shows them that he's actually even greater than they ever imagined. He shows them that their understanding of his identity as the Christ, as the Son of the living God, is too small. He's even more glorious and more amazing and more worthy than they ever hoped or dreamed. And that's because of Jesus' death on a cross and his call for us to pick up our cross and follow him is ever going to make sense. We must first understand that he's, that he's actually the greatest being in existence. Our outline for this morning is this. First, we'll see Jesus reveals his glory, followed by the Father reveals his Son, and finally, the disciples begin to understand. So first, Jesus reveals his glory. So our passage today picks up on a mountain, or picks up on a mountain. Uh, it could be a mountain uh, in Caesarea Philippi where they were. Uh, it could be a mountain in Galilee where they're going. Uh, probably the best explanation is that it's a mountain somewhere along the way because the mountains in Caesarea Philippi were too high, the hills in Galilee were too low, and that's actually kind of a nice thing that we don't know the actual mountain where it's at because what, what would we do if we knew the mountain? We'd probably put up shop there and make idols and, you know, it'd be terrible, right? Um, so Matthew, Matthew tells us this. He says, After six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. So when Matthew tells us that what we're about to read uh, takes place uh, six days after what we've just read, that's his way of saying that this is connected to that. So as we read, we're supposed to keep in mind Peter's confession— Jesus' revelation of his suffering and death, and his call for us to take up our cross and follow him. Also, as Matthew sets up the scene, uh, he wants us to know that Jesus is on this mountain with only his closest disciples. He's only taking 
Peter and James and John, he says explicitly they're by themselves. There's no one else here. And that's important because it tells us that not everyone gets to see what Peter and James and John get to see up here. God wants us to know this happened, but that it doesn't need to happen for everyone. And then Matthew tells us what they see. And Jesus was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. So that word transfigured is the Greek word metamorpho, and that's where we get our English word metamorphosis. And metamorphosis is what happens when a caterpillar becomes a butterfly. It's the same exact being, but a transfiguration has taken place. We can now see something about this being that we could not see before, something that's always been there. A butterfly was always hidden inside the caterpillar. We just couldn't see it. And that's what's happening here. They're seeing Jesus for who he's always been. And what they're seeing is heavenly. His face is shining like the sun, his clothes are as white as light. And I don't know about you, but when I read that, I get the feeling that the English language is so limited that it cannot possibly describe what we're seeing here. And so the way the Bible helps us out with scenes like this is it takes these scenes and the language used to describe scenes like this, and it just stacks them together throughout Scripture. God leads Israel through the desert. How? By a pillar of fire. Isaiah tells us that the brightness of the glory of the Lord is so bright that one day we will not need the light from the sun anymore because... The Lord will be your everlasting light, and your God will be your glory. When Ezekiel sees the likeness of the glory of the Lord, what he sees is a likeness with a human appearance, he says. And then he goes on and says, like the appearance of fire enclosed all around, and there was brightness around him. The New Testament tells us that Jesus is the radiance of, of the glory of God. In the book of Revelation, John sees Jesus, and he tells us his face was like the sun shining in full strength, like, like taking the trip into space to just stand before the white, hot brightness of the sun. So Peter, James, and John are seeing Jesus as he really is, as the radiance of the glory of God, they're seeing the glory that Jesus had with the Father before he came into the world. They're seeing that Jesus didn't lose any of his glory or his majesty or his power when he came into the world. Paul tells us in Philippians, though he was in the form of God, Jesus did not count equality with God 
a thing to be grasped or, or held on to, but emptied himself. Not by losing any of his glory, but by adding humanity to himself. So he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And so the disciples, they've only ever seen Jesus in this humble form. They've seen him after he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. And here on the Mount of Transfiguration, Jesus wants his three closest friends to know and to see his true glory. And Matthew goes on. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. So Moses and Elijah are two great Old Testament prophets. Uh, Moses represents the law. Elijah represents the prophets. And the prophets explain the law. And their presence here on the mountain is telling us that the Old Testament is about Jesus. There's no conflict between the two. And each of these men, Moses and Elijah, explicitly point forward from the Old Testament to Jesus. And so before the Israelites uh, entered the promised land, Moses tells them this in Deuteronomy. He says, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. And then in the final words of the Old Testament in the book of Malachi, we read this. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. So here Jesus is with both of them on this mountain, and they're here to point to Jesus, to affirm that he is the greater one, he is the prophet that Moses was talking about. He is the Lord that would come after Elijah. And then Peter, who we can always count on uh, to say something in a moment like this, he says, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. And then you kind of get the sense that Peter just keeps talking and, and babbling here because in the very next verse, uh, God the Father is going to show up in his glory cloud and interrupt Peter. But the beauty here is that on some level, Peter gets it. He knows that it's good that they're here. But this vision is not meant to last. Visions, right, on the mountain, you can't build a tent and stay there forever. You got to come home from high camp. And some of you, some of you have had glorious experiences with God. And it is good. It is a gift. Because Jesus is glorious, and we were made to bask in his glory, and one day we will see him and become like him. 
One day, every believer will live in a world so full of the glory of God that we will have no need for the sun or the moon anymore. But the Christian life is not lived on the mountain. And not everyone will experience the mountain. And the kind of Christianity that teaches people that everyone should experience this, it leads to two, two things. Either, either people will live in despair because they're not experiencing it, or they'll live in a selfish, ongoing, constant search for it. Because Christianity is lived in the valley of the shadow of death. Denying ourselves, taking up our cross, and following him, and trusting that when God wants to, in his grace, he will break through and show us his glory. And that's what Peter, James, and John must learn. And so the Father now joins them on the mountain and also reveals his Son to them. And so if there was any doubt about Jesus' own glory and power and majesty after they saw him transfigured, uh, if there was any lack of understanding after what they just saw, all of a sudden God the Father descends on the mountain in his glory cloud, and we read this. Peter was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. So God overshadowing a mountain in a cloud of glory is supposed to make us think of the book of Exodus. Right after Moses led the people of Israel out of Egypt, right after God parted the Red Sea so they could walk across and dry land and escape from the Egyptians, God leads them to Mount Sinai, and he leads them there to explain to them who he is. He wants to explain to them what it will be like to have a relationship with him. He gives them his law. He organizes them into a nation. And when we first meet God on the mountain, we read this. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled and they stood far off and said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen. But do not let God speak to us lest we die. And then later, when Moses goes up to the mountain, he describes it this way. Then Moses went up on the mountain, and the cloud covered the mountain, and the glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai. And the cloud covered it six days, and on the seventh day he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain, and the sight of the people of Israel. And so with a few quick strokes of the pen, Matthew tells us that Jesus is the son of this God. And that this God, who thundered from the top of Mount Sinai, is now on top of this mountain with the disciples, which totally explains their response in verse 5. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified, right? Just like the people of Israel. 
They were terrified because the thundering God of Mount Sinai is speaking to them. Notice something else. Since the people of Israel couldn't bear to hear God speak, they tell Moses, you speak to us and we'll listen. And if you recall, we just read Deuteronomy 18, where Moses said, a prophet greater than me is coming, listen to him. And now here God is on the top of the mountain with the disciples saying, this is my beloved son, listen to him. Do you see the connections, right? Jesus is coming, listen to him. We can't bear to hear you speak, God. Give us Moses. Moses is like, no, there's somebody better coming. Listen to him. And here God is on the mountain with the disciples saying, this is my son. Listen to him. And these are the same words the father spoke over his son at his baptism. Only now he adds, listen to him. And the reason is, is because Jesus is the word of God. Jesus is the one through whom God spoke and created all things. He is the final word. He is the one speaking in every single word of Scripture. Listen to him. You see, the truth is we're all listening to something or someone. Our world tells us to listen to our hearts. I don't know about you, but there's a lot of things in my heart that I ought not to listen to. There are a thousand voices out there and movies and TV shows and YouTube and TikTok and Fox News and CNN and Twitter. I don't know what your particular media of choice is, but, but there's a lot of speaking going on. There's a lot of calling out to our ears wanting us to listen and to pay attention to them. And they're all telling us who the real enemy is, what's really wrong with the world and what we need to do about it. And none of that, none of that will ultimately ever lead to peace and righteousness on earth. We would all be better citizens of America if we spent all morning reading our Bibles, coming home from work, and then spend all evening reading our Bibles. Now, obviously, I know God calls us to enjoy this world, but, but the point I'm trying to make is we're all listening to a voice. And Jesus is the one who speaks the words of forgiveness and mercy and life and then lays down his life for his friends, which is why he speaks and says he must go to Jerusalem and suffer and die. And then he speaks and calls us to take up our cross and follow him, to lose our life so we can find it. So who are you listening to, Christian? What voices fill your heart and your mind on a daily basis? Because whatever voice we listen to most will be the voice that has the opportunity to most shape our heart. Whether it's your own voice or someone else's, may it be the voice of Jesus that we listen to. Matthew goes on, but Jesus came and touched them saying, rise and have no fear. 
And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. And so just like that, it's over. And they saw no one but Jesus only. <laughs> but wait a minute, Jesus. There is a reason to be afraid, right? We, we were just surrounded by the glory cloud of God that covered Mount Sinai with smoke and lightning. We heard his voice. We saw your face shining like the sun. <laughs> and we're sinners. That's the beauty of the gospel, right? Jesus comes to us. We see him only. And he says, don't be afraid. He is the one who makes peace with God for us. And God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. And if we believe, if we believe that, there is no need to fear. There's no need to fear our future. There's no need to fear about our health. Right? We, we will, right, because we're so frail and weak. But we ought to know that there is no need to fear. Which takes us to our final point. The disciples begin to understand. Uh, so <laughs> the picture I have here of the disciples are like people who are trying to learn a new subject, and they're reading it for the very first time. This is their very first paper on the subject of Jesus. They're confused, they're disoriented, they're having trouble connecting all the references, and they don't understand exactly how Moses and Elijah fit with Jesus. They've become convinced that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and then he tells them he's going to die, and they're supposed to pick up their cross and go die too, and and they're just having trouble putting it all together. And now he shows them this heavenly glory that he had with the Father before he became a human and that he will have with God after he dies and rises again. And he shows it to them now so that they'll know that, that he still has it now. It's just hidden by his humble human form. And he shows it to them so that when he does die and rise again and ascend into heaven, Right? This is an important piece for them to be able to connect all the dots here. But at this time, you can, just, you can just picture them walking down the mountain and they're all quiet and thinking and thinking and confused. And then Jesus is the first one to speak. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. And earlier he told them, don't tell anybody I'm the Christ. And he told them that because no one was ready for what that meant. And this time he tells them, don't tell anybody about the vision. But then he adds, until the Son of Man rises from the dead. Right? So, so Jesus has now given them this puzzle piece about the Son of Man and the necessity of him suffering and dying and rising again. And so he takes that puzzle piece and he connects this now to the vision. And he says, look. Look, don't tell anybody about this vision until the Son of Man rises from the dead. And then you can almost imagine another, I don't know, 20 minutes going by, and they're like, okay, we won't say anything. 
and they're walking, and they're still trying to put it all together. And then they ask this question. And the disciples asked him, then why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? The Pharisees and the scribes were not always wrong. There was that prophecy in Malachi that we looked at already, which we'll look at again, that says this, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. And so the scribes taught that Elijah would come before the Messiah, and he would restore all things by turning the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. But the question is, if Jesus is the Messiah, or the Christ, or the Anointed One, where's Elijah? Wasn't he supposed to come first? And they just saw him up there on the mountain, but that certainly couldn't have been what Malachi was talking about. And if Elijah is supposed to come and restore all things, and if he does restore all things when he comes, then why would Jesus need to die? if everything's restored. So we have two, two questions here, right? We have a timeline problem, right? And then we have a theology problem. And these questions are more confusing because after seeing what they just saw on the mountain, the disciples are more convinced that Jesus is the Messiah. And yet Jesus is still talking about dying. So Jesus answered, Elijah does come, and he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come, and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. So Jesus says the scribes are right. Elijah does come and restore all things. He solves the timeline problem. He solves the theological problem. The reason the timeline doesn't conflict with Jesus being the Messiah, is because Elijah has already come. And he came, and he restored all things by not being recognized, and then by them, meaning the world, the devil, Herod, and the religious leaders, doing whatever they please to him. And then Jesus adds, so also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Because that's how all things are restored. By not being recognized and by them doing whatever they pleased to Jesus too. And when Jesus said this, we're told, then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. So the restoration of all things happens through death. John the Baptist prepared the way of the Lord by going before Jesus into death. And even though John the Baptist, who was putting the puzzle pieces together himself, was probably expecting to be rescued from prison right up until he died, he still trusted Jesus up to, into, and through his own death. And it is very likely that all of us will do the same one day. We will be called to trust Jesus right up to, into, and through our own deaths. And in so doing, John prepared the way for how all things would be restored, right? Jesus goes into the grave. He brings all of those united with him 
with him into the grave, and then rises again to new life. This is the part the disciples were struggling to understand. They just didn't see how victory comes from defeat. They don't see yet how life comes from death because they have not seen Jesus rise from the dead. And <laughs> they, they don't really understand how much they deserve to die. Friends, the only way Jesus' death makes any sense is if we see that it is our only hope. God told Adam and Eve in the garden that when you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will surely die. And that curse is still on all of us because that is what sinful flesh deserves. And this is why the disciples were so terrified in God's presence on the mountain because not a single one of us can stand in his presence on our own. And we will either die and pay that price ourselves for eternity or we can receive Jesus and be united to him by faith. Right? And we can see him only and hear him say, rise and do not be afraid. By putting our trust in his life, death, and resurrection in our place, this is the only way. A couple final notes of application here. First, we need this story. We need this vision of Jesus. We need to know that he has never lost his glory and that in dying and rising again from the dead, he didn't gain glory. He's always had it. He didn't come and die to earn anything for himself. He came and died for us for sinners who put their faith in him. He didn't set aside his glory while he walked this earth. Instead, he took on human flesh. He's always been the greatest being in existence. He's always been the radiance of the glory of God, even while he was walking this earth. And the more we understand how great and glorious Jesus is and has always been, the more we understand his love for us, that he would be willing to humble himself, take the form of a servant, become obedient to the point of death on a cross, even the most shameful and humiliating death imaginable. Um, second, we need this story for how it compares to the glory of the cross. It doesn't contradict the glory of the cross, but it magnifies the glory of the cross, because it helps us see just how majestic and powerful and wonderful the person is who died for us. And the glory of the cross magnifies the bright, shining glory of the Mount of Transfiguration, because on the cross, Jesus shows us his humility and his love and his justice and his mercy and his forgiveness, right? All things that we could never see of God otherwise— and notice the Mount of Transfiguration, uh, the Mount of bright, shining glory, is private. He shows that only to a few. Not everyone will see his glory on the mountain. Although everyone will one day see him in his resurrected glory. But the Mount of Crucifixion, well, that's public. That's for everyone to see. Right? His mercy and his justice on display 
for the world to see. One is the glory of power, the other is the glory of humility. Here, Jesus is surrounded by Moses and Elijah who point to him from the Old Testament. What could be more honorable than that? On the cross, he's surrounded by thieves and criminals. What could be more shameful than that? Yet because of what Jesus does, even one of them is ushered into paradise with him. And then finally, we have something even more glorious than the Mount of Transfiguration. So later, Peter is going to write uh, to churches who are tempted to fall away from the Christian faith. People who are tempted to believe liars and false teachers. And here's what he says. He said, for we did not follow cleverly devised myths. So made up stories, right? That's why, we, that's why in the, um, before I read the Apostles' Creed, I said, our, our faith is built on history, right? Not, not philosophy, not some man's experience in a cave, not, not what man can discover by just looking at the natural world. It's, it's built on things that happened in history. He says, We did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Now he's going to go on and describe being on the Mount of Transfiguration. He says, for when we received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And then he says, and we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed more fully confirmed than what I saw on the Mount of Transfiguration, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your heart, right? Until that same glory of Jesus appears inside your heart through his word and transfigures you so you look like him. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. You see, Peter, as an apostle, someone Jesus chose to be the foundation of the church, assures us that our faith is not built on myths or human ideas or philosophies because he saw the heavenly vision on the mountain. He heard the voice of God. But then he says this. That we have the prophetic word even more. And that is the word of God given to us by men who spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit which we will all do well to pay attention. And when we do, that light, dare I say the glory of Jesus, shines in our hearts. So we don't need a vision of God's glory on a mountain. He will give us glimpses of his glory and his word. If only we will pay attention 
And yes, it will be on his timing, right? It will be when he chooses it, right? We come to God on his terms, not on ours. But if we do, his truth will be more fully confirmed to us than even a heavenly vision on a mountain. Let's pray. Father, we come to you and we confess that we long to see you in your glory. We long to be assured in this way of your power and your majesty and your greatness and your might. And yet, Father, we, we recognize that, that we can see your glory as it is displayed on the pages of Scripture, as you move us to put confidence in your word, where your glory is more fully assured to us. I pray, Father, that we would be a humble people, satisfied in the sufficiency of your word, who bask in the glory of your transfiguration and the glory of your crucifixion and the glory of your resurrection and the glory of your ascension and the coming glory of your return. God, may these be the glories and the voices that fill our hearts and minds day in and day out by the power of your Holy Spirit, by the inward call of your love for us. In Jesus' name, amen.